Hello, you're listening to episode 15 of the Alt-Brow Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Decker. Today we're talking to Michael Kaiser from Good Beer Hunting. GBH is known for their work in beer on two fronts. On one hand, helping both established brands as well as startups with marketing, design, and events, and on the other hand, for their editorial. Their coverage of the beer industry is what caught my attention a few years ago, and I've had the honor of now being a semi-frequent contributor to their B-roll photo series. In my opinion, the writers and photographers at GBH are the best in the business, and this team of contributors and designers has been carefully curated by its founder, Michael Kaiser. Michael lives in Chicago with his wife and two young children, and has been keeping an inquiring eye on beer for some time now. What started as a blog has become a full-time gig, and although not everyone understands what he's trying to achieve with GBH, it's fair to say he's become an expert in market trends and a valuable voice in the discussion of how breweries do business. Before we get started, I wanted to give you all an update on the Alt-Brow bottle sale that happened one week ago on Wednesday, May 6th, 2020, via the Shady Oak Barrel House web store. During session one, we realized that the automatic shipping calculator had not been disabled, causing nine or so customers to get overcharged for shipping. By the time we realized what had happened, it was too late to fix. We sold the first 175 bottles in an incredible four minutes. I'm so grateful and humbled by our supporters, so you can imagine how angry at myself I was for not having figured out the problem ahead of time. Session two went much smoother, selling the next 175 bottles in about 11 minutes without any of the shipping errors. We've reached out to everyone who is overcharged and already submitted refunds, and we thank them for their patience as we work that out. Pickup orders and GSO orders were just about a 50-50 split, and the following day, once we knew how many we needed, we placed the order for bottle shippers. We wanted to work with a local packaging company here in Northern California, but they were initially non-responsive, so we ordered from an East Coast company. As soon as those shippers arrive, I will be packing boxes and getting them to GSO. We appreciate your patience. We've been asked when the next bottle sale will be, and the truth is I honestly don't know. We have product in barrels that's tasting great, and we have some hops on the way, so hopefully our next bottles will be some dry hopped Saison variants. We're also working with local farmers on sourcing fruit. Those beers will take a little bit longer since they need to re-ferment on the fruit before bottle conditioning. My goal is that before the end of the year, we will have two more sales. For anybody who wants to try our beer, our goal is to have some events with our friends in the bar and restaurant industry as soon as it's safe. Look for more info over the next few months and on our social media. I can't possibly thank everybody enough for making our bottle sales such a success. The bottles you purchased required over a year of work and are a reflection of that. Altbrow has been a passion project of mine since 2013, and I'm so happy I can now share it with you. With that in mind, when you open one of these bottles, do me a favor and take a moment to think about a project you're working on. Maybe you're writing some music or building a portfolio. Perhaps you're learning how to bake bread or you're starting to brew beer as well. Feel free to email me and tell me about it and keep up the good work. That's all for now. As always, thank you for listening. This is episode 15 of the All Brow Podcast with Michael Kaiser from Good Beer Hunting. Enjoy. It is growing back. Yeah, little by little. It's pretty on the short side, we're meet- but it's there. We're, me- we're kind of meeting in the middle. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
<laughs> mine, mine was down here and you know i just really didn't want to look like that dude who's in all the headlines of screaming at that cop yeah uh, yeah i he had a side profile i kind of looked a lot like him and even though i'm not going outside i just didn't i looked in the mirror and i was grossed out so <laughs> yeah that's gonna be a new aesthetic we're gonna carry that yeah. with us for a while yeah so you know uh obviously i've got related to gbh by the way this is just how we start so okay that's fine by me. <laughs> it's Okay. Um, I've got some questions lined up uh, regarding GBH, of course, but uh, also I've got some friends from some different text groups as well as members of the Fervent Few that wrote some questions. So we'll get to those kind of at the end. Okay. But literally the first thing I wrote down, and this is the section regarding what the hell's going on right now in this industry, it, it literally says first sentence, what the fuck is happening? Uh, you know, obviously right now, you know, uh, I've been trying to avoid on the podcast and on like my social media getting too uh, deep into the weeds on what's happening with COVID-19 and coronavirus. But uh, I figure if there's anybody I could talk to about how it's going to affect and how it is affecting the beer industry, um, seems like you'd be the right guy to at least have that, that, that back and forth with. So um, yeah. just on a surface level, what are you seeing like uh, as far as rapid pivoting by breweries like you're, you're obviously talking to a lot more breweries than I am yeah and some of them on a daily basis because uh, they're our clients so uh, yeah I mean I definitely can't speak for everybody and it's just one perspective but um, I think big picture wise what we're seeing is uh, just a an extremely rapid time cycle of change that I think you know a lot of it would have played out over the next 10 years um, some of it would have played out over the next few years Things like, you know, delivery becoming more important. Um, uh, I think that we, the number of breweries we have now, that especially our, that our own premise are taproom based, they were already starting to put up numbers that kind of made them more like restaurants than breweries in terms of their resilience financially, uh, how much they relied on foot traffic and how much turnover there might have been. Like, so we were already kind of coming up on some of these critical issues. Um, and COVID-19 just put... And, and economic and social pressure on some of those things in a way that we never, you know, in, in any scenario, you never would have planned for. So, um, you know, now we see breweries that were taproom only pivoting to package and home delivery uh, as a new business model. And they're probably going to have to stick with that for a long, long time. Uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. They're not going to get, nobody's going to get numbers back above 50% probably in the next year. Uh, if we're lucky. I mean, even if things open up, we're just going to have so much social, uh, you know, social change of how we perceive situations and what it means to go out and interact with other people that you don't know, uh, that's going to take a long time to shake off. Um, and it might never, we might be seeing a fundamental change in how we behave in public. And we've seen it before, right? Like, you yeah. know, after stuff like 9-11, like all of a sudden we have a state that is existing in an extreme security scenario. Um, and most of our daily lives, like when we go to the airport, we interact with a post 9-11 airport um, we're probably never going to go back to those days before that. I mean, I, you know, I remember my parents coming all the way to the gate with me to like, send me off on yeah. my first flight. Yeah. Um, we're about, you know, we're both old enough to remember some of that. Um, yeah. it is crazy when you think about <clears throat> obviously younger folks, they, you know, weren't old enough to remember the days before the internet. Right. They don't remember the days before nine 11. These are big yeah. cultural shifts. And I can't imagine that this isn't going to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems like it might be and the whether, answer. yeah, whether we're talking about, I mean, I think obviously 
you and I, with what we do, we're, there's a lot of conversation about breweries and, and restaurants, but um, outside of our, our bubble that we work in, you know, you as a father, yeah. uh, you have a son, if you don't mind me mentioning, yeah. you mentioned it on your Twitter, that is immunocompromised. So this, this, I remember you being one of the first people who like, I was, I think, you know, I was definitely taking this all serious, but I remember seeing your reaction first and it really, I was like, Oh, okay. And as somebody who I, you know, obviously you're kind of known for looking at market trends and things and kind of seeing the writing on the wall that it, it meant something to me that you were like, oh, you, you jumped pretty quick. Yeah. On, I mean, on reacting to this. There were definitely a number of factors for me. I mean, I travel a ton for my job, um, which might be a massive change for me going forward. Um, I mean, we had just hosted, we had just hosted our uppers and downers festival for about a thousand people. Uh, and I had just gone to Costa Rica and I was just getting ready to go back down to Florida, um, to do the food for thought festival, uh, with green bench down there. And we, you know, I'd been paying attention to, to the COVID-19 thing and wondering how it might influence things, but none of it felt really that immediate yet. Um, it felt, you know, it felt like there was the potential for something, you know, flu like that was bad and, and not good for older people, but it didn't really indicate any problems for younger folks. Um, and I didn't really have any too, you know, big concerns. I was packed and ready to go the next morning. This was Wednesday night. And that's when I was watching the NBA and I watched the NBA pull everybody off the court, even as our president went on camera and tried to tell everybody everything was going to be okay. Um, and those two things were in direct opposition to each other. And uh, I don't think I'm alone in the fact that I would trust a large corporation like the NBA to protect itself from something more than I would trust uh, Donald Trump to protect us from anything. So most of the things that he thought I think were going to be reassuring just sent off a lot of red flags for me. And that's when I sort of began to quickly realize like, oh, this thing is everywhere already. Um, that this isn't like a, an emerging threat. Like we're already way behind. Um, right. but I made, I made the call that night texting with green bench and a few other friends and, and telling them that, uh, that it wasn't worth the risk. Um, you know, I didn't really feel like I was personally at, at a lot of risk, but I was already starting to think about other people I could infect, which was, you know, for me, that's my family. That's my oldest son who has down syndrome. Respiratory illnesses are, are particularly, uh, hellish for him sometimes. So I mean, he gets, if he gets whooping cough, we end up in the ER, you know, if he gets this thing, who knows what happens. So that's when I made the call. And then, it, you know, I think overnight and the next morning, it became really clear to me that like we were shutting the studio down. We were working from home until you know, because we have the luck, you know, we were lucky that the kind of business we run can do that. We can work remotely you know, anytime we need to. So we sent everybody home. Um, you know, some of them stayed a little bit longer. They didn't, you know, I, I stayed home. Some of them stayed home immediately. A couple others kind of kept coming in every couple of days or whatever to do some work. But slowly but surely, we just, uh, just kind of went into lockdown. And lockdown for me is pretty serious because of my kids. So like all our groceries are being delivered. We're not going to any place where people can congregate. Um, I've been to the studio to get mail and like check on the plants and water them. And I did like a couple of days worth of work there by myself because nobody else is going now. Um, but other than that, we haven't been out anywhere. Uh, I went to one brewery to pick up some beer uh, down to off color because that was the only way I could get it. Um, I was kind of curious how I was going to feel about that. And I think they did a great job, but I still walked away feeling like, like this is still, this is still threatening, you know? Um, even though there was no immediate threat in the environment to me there, like it, it still felt like I was putting myself out there and taking risks. So it's tricky, man. Um, yeah, we went into lockdown pretty fast and we haven't let up since, um, that Wednesday that Trump went on TV was basically the last day my family left the house. 
for anything more than like a walk around the block. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'll, I'll admit to, uh, you know, about five weeks or like last weekend, we finally kind of broke down and we call our best friends who live up an hour North of us. And that's where I have all my barrels at and everything. So it's something where I was, you know, already kind of planning on going up there to check on some, some work related stuff. And we just, you know, it, we were thinking about it in this way. Like, you know, we're, we go to the grocery store. We're, we're still going to the grocery store um, and being safe, um, you know, wiping everything off when it comes home, mask, gloves, the whole thing. Um, and, you know, since the beginning, they've been saying, well, you know, obviously uh, you can go to the grocery store and that's fine. And like that is to nourish or to sustain your body as far as, you know, sustenance and food. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, there's a mental health aspect yeah. where we're losing it. And we just want to be with like our best friends who have also been isolating and they also have like a baby. And so we waited five weeks to, so no one was showing any signs of anything. Mm-hmm. We went last week and we're, pl- and we're hoping to go visit for like a, you know, and we didn't hug or anything. Um, but we're hoping to go next weekend to do like a social distancing picnic or something. Um, just basically we're doing two week incubation windows to make sure no one's has signs of anything from like leaving. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect. And I, I'm sure there's a lot. I'm obviously we all know people who are just not even giving a shit yeah. and it's um, yeah. So yeah, I've done a couple crazy, of backyard man. hangs at a distance with people that, uh, that yeah. are friends of mine. Um, and man, it's wild. Like, I keep thinking in terms of like fidelity now, like, especially since we're doing, you know, we're doing calls like this that are on zoom or you're talking over the phone, you're texting a lot. Like those used to exist, like in the interstitial space of our socializing and now it's all of it. Right. So like that, that fidelity level was never all that important. In fact, low fidelity kind of helped you focus on other things that were, you know, really, really required your attention. But when you now stand, you know, a short distance from one of your friends and you have a conversation that can be layered rather than you talk, then Mm -hmm. I talk, then you talk, then I talk, Mm -hmm. uh, the fidelity of that conversation is almost mind bending. Um, like if, it yeah. feels like you're on drugs that are making things hyper real. Like, um, yeah, it's, and while there's like, you know, your loved ones or spouse or partners having another conversation 10 feet away and you're getting like that information coming in kind of yeah. in the periphery and you're having a beer that wasn't, didn't come from your refrigerator. It came from your friends. You know, it's like just little things. It's, it's tactile. It's like the whole, yeah. 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 It's weird, man. Yeah. It's uh, uh, anytime I travel, especially in a foreign country where like, I can't read the signs really, you know, cause it's in another language or mm-hmm. something. Uh, I find that my brain can't really filter out uh, what's important and what's not like, it kind of tries to pay attention to everything. Um, yeah. You're hyper alert. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And that's what so, that you feels know, like when somebody hands you a beer that mm-hmm. came from their fridge, you're just like, this is a beer from someone else's fridge. It's like, why is my brain is even this processing safe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, what's funny is like, um, there was, I don't remember who I was listening to some psychedelic dude. Like, I don't know, it may have been like Timothy Leary or, uh, Ram Dass or somebody. And he was talking about somebody, one, you know, one of his, um, followers was saying something along the lines about, you know, um, religious practice wearing like something that can identify identifies them as that and and they were commenting i think they were talking about like because this it was like in the 60s and 70s they were talking about the 
what are the the group that hangs out at the airport and passes out the little booklets? Oh, the, the um, Hari Krishnas. Hari Krishnas. Yeah. yeah. So they were talking about that, and and basically the they were kind of like half joking about it, but they but basically the person said like actually like part of the reason for that is it you're in your day to day, you're in your everyday life, and everything is just kind of static, and then you see somebody who's so out of place because they look like they're a Bedouin from the Middle East in the in the 1400s, and then you're like it just snaps you into what like it's that moment it's like and so this is kind of like our new norm is us sitting in our houses talking like this and so just the act of being around each other is can be that elevated yeah it feels radical yeah it's kind of crazy so i don't want you obviously that we could talk this could be hours of conversation just about this but um people don't listen to my podcast to hear me talk about all the downer stuff yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, adjacent to the beer, at least, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. So, at least in the reference to what's going on with um, coronavirus, and, you know, like you said, I don't, and I agree, I don't see things ever really going back 100%, and I definitely think we're going to see some things sticking around. In fact, that was actually questions. We'll skip ahead. Um, Michael McAllister from Fervent Few actually asked, what is one thing from the beer insider marketplace that has changed during the pandemic that each of you will stick that each of you think will stick? And what is one thing each think will, that you each think will go away? Hmm. What do you think something that is? Yeah. I mean, that's anyway. I mean, I'm definitely thinking a lot about what newness means right now in craft beer. Um, I mean, there are breweries out there that their entire identity is built around never making the same beer twice. Um, you know, some of that might continue, of course, but I think what we're seeing now is that people are ordering larger quantities less often. Um, so even if they're not going back to, you know, what we might consider like the, the flagships of the nineties and the early aughts, uh, we're seeing people buy in that way. Um, they're buying cases of beer at a time. Um, and you know, they're getting it directly delivered from a brewery and, you know, there are costs when you do that. There's delivery costs. There's the cost of like having to browse and figure out where you want to go and, you know, when you want to buy something, where you're going to get it. Um, so there's a little bit more kind of thoughtful labor involved in your beer purchasing now than ever before, whereas you used to just be able to show up and see whatever was new and try it and drink it. Um, and, you know, we call that trial. So I think trial is going to be a really hard thing to, to prop up going forward for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Are people really going to, take a flyer on a, you know, a 16 or a $20 four pack of something when they can get something they already know they really like, and they can buy a case of it, you know, at a discount or something and have that delivered. Um, I think those behaviors... now, now people, I was gonna say now people have woken up to how fragile some things are. And so maybe they don't have time to like invest in a risk. Like there's so, already so much real risk. Now everyone's been made aware of what real risk yeah. looks like. And so taking a risk on a beer, like, now why would I do that? I'm just going to buy the one I know I like. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what you're describing is basically a, a new cognitive load that we're all going to be carrying for a long, long time. Like a, a big piece of our brains is going to be devoted to a very real risk that is not going away for a couple of years, probably. Um, that means that there's a big part of our brain that's not going to relax. And it's not going to just like look around for what's new and jump in and take, you know, even take little risks. Um, we're going to be very risk averse culture for a long time. So yeah, I, th- I think there's a part of the beer market that kind of existed on the privilege of a banging economy 
uh, a bunch of people that were safe and were taking risks on lots of different kinds of things and just wanted something new to kind of tickle and entertain them. Um, I think a, I think a major part of that sentiment is going to go away for a long time and people are going to just be focused on like what's good, what's dependable, what's available and safe. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of beer purchasing. It's just going to be done in a way we haven't seen in 20, 30 years. Um, so that's something new you think that is going to stick around yeah, I think so. uh, on mine. I'll make it quick. I think that uh, beer delivery, that the thing is, at least here in California, it was already legal to ship beer in the state of California. Just nobody wanted to do the infrastructure to build it out in their, in their tap room until, or to their brewery until now they had now to. It's a lifeline. Um, and, and now it's a lifeline, but I don't think that you can put that genie back in the bottle. And I think it's, people are seeing that alternative streams of revenue have always been important. And now they really realize that they should have maybe not put all their eggs in the tap room basket. And so they're going to keep that alternative stream of revenue. People are excited here in Northern California that they can get monkish for the first time. You know, you can buy um, other half beer in a Wegmans <laughs> in upstate New York right now. That's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't think that's going away. No, I, I think um, you're right. So that's, that's my, that's my quick one. And then as far as something that you think is that, that has, has come out, but is not going to last. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't think that the numbers that are being put up right now in packaged stores, uh, you know, grocery channels, major retailers, I mean, they're seeing 4th of July numbers every week. Um, I think those brands are going to benefit for the short term um, just because the, the, the access to market is so narrow right now where you can buy beer and how you can do it um, and people are stocking up uh, i think the moment that we get a, and this is a little bit counter to what i was saying before like i think the moment that we start to relax a little bit and we start to feel safe again um, i think people are going to buy you know a little bit less beer at a time i think they're going to buy seasonals uh instead of flagships i mean right now people like everybody thinks that you know this is the return of the flagship uh it's really i mean that's just what's available right now like people are just yeah. doubling down on what they can make fastest and best and easiest. And they have a ton of printed cans ready to go for like, this is all a matter mm -hmm. of necessity on the producer side, not on demand. So like, yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, you're putting up huge numbers because of your flagship pale ale, that's great for now, but eventually people will want some kind of fresh thing. And so I think in the middle, I think we're going to see some of those flagships fall off into their normal numbers uh, or at least, you know, diminished from what they're doing now. And I think seasonals are going to take their place more than they ever have. Um, I mean, suddenly getting a summer ale from Sam Adams is going to seem like a breath of fresh fucking air uh, if you've been yeah. crushing Boston lager for the last two months. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there's a little too much faith right now in what's going on in some of these mass retail channels with flagships, uh, large formats. Um, I think I think craft is going to continue to nip away at that as it gets its infrastructure better at home delivery, direct consumer shipping. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the growth engine for craft now, which is going to be small, but it's going to chip away like it always does. Yeah. And I'm going to piggyback on that and say that um, I do think that as people's anxiety levels come down slowly um, and the perceived risk, whether the actual um, biological risk has changed at all, but the perceived risk um, decreases I think that they will calm slightly and remember that they have small local businesses that are about to go under yeah. if they don't change their buying habits. So it's easy to just say, I'm going to go to the big chain grocer and get the big beer that I already know. Yeah. And I, it's just, I don't want to think about it, but slowly that thought of 
the brands you love on a local level are going to creep back into yep. your brain and you're going to remember. And so that's kind of, uh, it's just another layer onto what you already said. Yeah. Like I've uh, seen it I in my own that's... behaviors. I mean, one of the first things I did was order a bunch of Modelo. <laughs> and like, I, yeah. that's not <laughs> normal for me. Like, I, I mean, I enjoy I think... that beer, but like, I can't remember the last time I bought a couple 12 packs of it, you know? Um, I think you, you were buying Modelo and a couple of other people on Fervent Fuel were buying like High Life. Yeah. It was just like <laughs> panic. Yeah. I think it just felt like the right thing I to bought, do. And then, but once that, yeah. once that was gone, it was like, all right, like, I think this week it's going to be all about off color. And then next week I, and yeah. then I ordered a couple of cases of Salamoth, you know, their Kolsch and their IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, like my brain started to like work through the noise a little bit more. And like, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, this is available. And if somebody's making it discoverable, like, you know, their social media presence is strong and they're getting in right. your face and they're reminding you they exist and you can get this beer that you love it becomes a pretty quick and easy transaction if they can get that system in place, you know, from Instagram to ordering to delivery. And that's right. everybody's new challenge is like, you've got to be discoverable and you've got to be able to get to consumers directly. Um, kind of the last question before I, uh, we get specifically into GBH um, topics. I did want to ask like, as a guy like myself who is trying to um, make my way through the fog of entrepreneurship, 10 years ago, starting a brewery looked one way. And I will say now it looks much different. And I think in 10 months, 10 years from now, it's going to look, of course, different. But can you, based on your, um, uh, you know, your look at the market and, um, and what's going on, can you kind of talk about the traditional business models and the traditional ways of entering the market and what you think things are going to look like moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I used to think about it in like a before and after, but now I think there's a third um, that we're kind of talking about in different ways right now. But I used to think, I used to talk about it in terms of like a brewery used to meet a factory, right? And then those factories kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but they were still manufacturing places. They were small manufacturing. And that's what we thought of as a brewery. And then the own premise revolution happened. And we started thinking about breweries in terms of hospitality, like tap rooms, not just brew pubs, which have been around forever, but like, the tap room thing, and especially in urban areas where tap rooms were kind of positioned almost like restaurants along a, you know, a busy corridor where there's lots of other restaurants and, and places to eat and drink. Um, they started competing with bars. So now they're not just small manufacturers. Manufacturing is almost like hidden in the back and you are now like a hospitality service. Um, right. Now I think, uh, you know, with that under threat and things already kind of moving in this direction, I think that, I think that the direct to consumer model is the future of what we're going to think of as a brewery. We're going to think of breweries like we think of Dollar Shave Club. Um, It's going to be a thing that shows up in your mail uh, once a week, once a month. Uh, That's going to be our primary experience with a lot of beer, with a lot of breweries. Uh, And we're going to consume them in our homes. And we already know that there are a lot of larger trends kind of pushing in this direction anyway. Uh, um, Younger people hanging out at home, um, getting things for cheap, delivered. Um, Not cheap necessarily, but like, you know, luxury items kind of at an affordable price. Um, and enjoying them with their friends in their living rooms. There was already large trends of that happening in, in the U.S. Uh, this is going to, I mean, this is another thing that I think COVID-19 just puts on hyperspeed. Um, that's going to be the primary way that we all drink and socialize going forward for a long time. So, yeah, it went from being manufacturing to hospitality to direct consumer. Like your ability to ship well and manage your brand over social and uh, over email with your customers is going to be the primary way that you do business well. Um, in that regard, I think you're kind of in this like 
you know, you're, you have the ability to benefit from your patience <laughs> and your, and your, <laughs> your speed to market or lack thereof is like, you, you're basically in a position to do that part very, very well. Um, keep it small, yeah, keep it profitable mention... and keep it direct to consumer. I mean, yeah, I was going to mention that like my, so right now the situation with Alt is we're recording this on Sunday, May 3rd. Uh, tomorrow I'll announce a bottle sale through Shady Oak. So all my beers, I'm still a home brewer mm -hmm. and I am given a creative space at my friend's brewery up in uh, Santa Rosa, Shady Oak. And I'm in the kind of the proof of concept phase, but ultimately the, the beers that are made there are my creations, my blends, my sourcing, everything. And um my plan was to like introduce those to like key market like key accounts you know we obviously in northern california have really fantastic bars and restaurants that i've been i've already been acquainted with uh through my day job and so i thought you know that that was going to be the way to go and literally like the week everything the shit really hit the fan um was when I was going to start doing releases. Mm -hmm. And I put out on my Instagram stories, a little poll asking people if I should wait or if I should, uh, you know, as the news was breaking, if I should wait or if I should just go for it. And I was about 70% of people said, go for it. And you and a few other people whose opinions I really respect said, wait, and I'm glad I did. And because now it's exactly what you're talking about. Not only would like, the release of my, my first beers through Shady Oak be kind of lost in the mix, but um, it, yeah, it just would have been a nightmare. And now that, you know, I would not say the dust has settled in any way, but we are living a little bit in a new norm. And so I'm able to kind of just readjust pivot like everybody else. Yeah. And you're, I mean, you're lucky. Um, I mean, you're, you're a good communicator. Uh, you handle like grassroots branding really well. And like you connect with people really well. Like, those are all skill sets for the new normal when it comes to small brands that are going to be direct to consumer. Um, that's how it's going to, that's how you'll be successful. I mean, these brands that are used to just like, you know, send it, like letting distributors build their brand and just putting them on grocery yeah. store shelves. Like, man, you're going to have a very difficult time uh, <laughs> trying to scale down to the personal level of what direct to consumer really requires. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, well, obviously news seems to be changing daily, but um, I agree with you. I do think that we're in a new age of um, people starting brands and people, the way that breweries are perceived. But what's interesting is this model I'm now kind of falling into is similar to what's already been happening with um, in Belgium and some of the, you know, I have friends overseas like that they do a bottle membership and that's all they do. Mm -hmm. And that's the only beers to get to anybody. And then they do, I shouldn't say only they, the only way that you can own a bottle at home is through their membership. And then they do ticketed tasting events. So like when restaurants reopen in limited capacity, they're probably going to be looking for ways to do high ticket dinners because they can't do a lot of people in their restaurant because we're still going to be living in this environment. And uh, you know, margins at restaurants are already so thin. So they're going to have to, like up the ticket price to, to have a dinner because they're only allowed to do 20 seats that night. Yeah. I mean, we you know always I mean? joke that like, you know, you pay for the experience at a restaurant and the holy yeah. shit. Yeah. You're right. You're really going to be it's paying gonna for that. It's going to double. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, because if you have half as many people, the cost of having a dinner out is going to double. Yep. That's what's going to happen. The so, literal cost of that um, chair. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that yet. That's great. Man. So um, related to good beer hunting, um, you know, I'm not going to get too much into like how you started. There's plenty of interviews where you've you've gotten into it and you describe the structure of your business um, regarding, you know, you have partners and clients where you're doing um, – design and marketing concepts but then you have the whole editorial side and despite multiple interviews and multiple explanations do you still feel like there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the hell good beer hunting is oh yeah for sure <laughs> i mean I'm, and i'm often surprised by where you know the some who the, some of those people are that have that misunderstanding um but whatever you know it's it's i've always known that it was going to be a challenge of a multifaceted organization because um I mean, it's like when you, it's like when you get to know a person where you've met them in life is how you always think of them. Right. So like, there are still people in my life that still think of me as like the baseball guy. <laughs> like that's pretty <laughs> wild to me. Like I, and they almost always call me Mike, um, which is hilarious. Right. Uh, and then there's people that think of me as the, you know, as the writer and the poet, because that's what I studied. And like, they'll always think of me that way. Um, and now, you know, now there are certainly people who will always think of me as the beer guy. Um, these are all really relatable to me and they're connected in, you know, important ways. Um, but it's hard for other people to connect those dots because they, you know, they have a confirmation and a recency bias based on what they knew of you when. And we, as humans, we tend to just lock that kind of information in and it's really hard to uncement that sometimes. So based on when you knew good beer hunting or what part of the business you interacted with first, it makes it very difficult to understand the rest of the organization. Um, and so that's something that we've always been working hard to kind of passively educate people about, like expose the ecosystem as much as we can, help them understand the relationship between those, you know, those pieces of the business um, and how those pieces are very specifically divided. Um, those are just as, you know, those are just as important as the connection. So yeah, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. It feels like sweeping the sand on a beach sometimes, um, but you, right. you just have to keep doing it. Uh, there's nothing, yeah, you don't really have a choice. But uh, tra I mean, transparency you, is the is the biggest mechanism we have for all that. I was going to say the thing I've learned probably most just from uh, you know seeing what you do a little bit on an internal level, member of the Ferrent Few, and I've been had the honor to contribute a little bit for the B roll series. Yeah. Um, I think what people don't see and understand is the the logistics and the op the the cost of operation both like financial cost and, you know, uh, mental well-being. I see, I see <laughs> everybody, I see everybody really putting their hearts into um, their projects, whether it's designers doing artistic projects or it's editorial trying to break a story. So um, yeah, I've always been drawn to what you guys have been doing and I'm, and the fact that I get to contribute in any ways has, it's been really cool for me. Oh man, so it was it was you. exciting for me. I mean, uh, everybody on our editorial side kind of has their own background and their own perspective, and you know, their own even in their heads, they have a different perception of what good beer hunting is. Um, and I kind of have this joke internally whenever I see somebody that does something in the way that I personally would have done it, you know, like ten years ago when I was like the only right. writer on the site. Uh, I always joke around and be like, "Oh, hey, someone's doing the good beer hunting." Uh, because we have so many pieces of editorial now that are like far superior to anything that I used to do. Um, you know, whether it's Roth's analysis or the poetic kind of feature writing that somebody like uh, Claire does and, um, and then just all the perspectives in the different locations they're writing from. So 
when I see somebody that's just doing something that feels kind of like raw and personal and like especially human, um, and it feels like it's at a level that is like, uh, it's hard to describe. It just feels very tangible to me. Um, that's when it feels like the good beer hunting that I love the most or that I recognize in the version of it that I, I myself really love. Um, and so your pieces, I, I mean, I kind of saw you doing the good beer hunting on your own, right? Just in your own <laughs> life, the pictures you were sharing and the way you talk, tell little stories in the fervent few. And man, I got really jazzed when I saw that. It felt like, a, I don't know, it felt like a recipe I hadn't seen in a while. It was cool. I'm, I'm honored to, to be able to contribute. Um, that kind of goes into one of the questions I had, which is like, how do you, how do you kind of come across people uh, that, um, you think you would like to have them contribute? Is it a similar situation where you're, they're basically doing the work independent? They're already doing it in the spirit of what you would call like what you imagine GBH being and you just kind of pull them into the, yeah. or, or, you know, like basically I would just wanted to see what, what kind of what your thoughts are. You kind of touched on it. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely how I go about it. Um, but I think the, the majority of the writers that we're bringing in now, I think, come in through Claire Bullen's personal relationships or who she's paying attention to. And so that's bringing a different perspective and a tone to things in a really compelling way. Uh, um, she's brought in some phenomenal writers um, uh, that are talking, you know, telling like really slow burn kind of iconic stories for us right now that are that are blowing me away. Um, I tend to look for the people that are on the kind of like a little off the radar. They're already doing something in a different vein. Um, they're not really trying to be a feature writer necessarily. I like I like finding them when they're just kind of like inspired to do something small and I can see the seeds of it in there. And I know that if we like, if we just water that for a while, you know, they can, that could become a really compelling voice. Uh, I take a lot of pride in, in the fact that a lot of the awards that we've won for Good Beer Hunting's editorial are usually given to writers that don't write for anybody else and have never written for anybody else. I mean, they're just, they were just kind of plucked out of the wilderness of the internet. Um, I, I take a lot of pride in that. I also take a lot of pride in being a really, really strong platform that's attractive to like seasoned veteran writers, like you know, people like Evan Rail, who's helping us build an international um, group of voices now. Uh, I kind of love that we have those two things almost in tension, in a very healthy tension on our site. Like from an editorial perspective, it's a lot of work. I mean, hit, you know, working with seasoned writers is exciting. It's fun. Um, they tend to turn in like pretty good copy that doesn't require a ton of work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, working with other people who are inexperienced and haven't had a chance at something like this yet and might be intimidated by it, um, that can be a lot of work. But man, the, the payoff is so big when, when you just like find, when you find a voice like that and it grows into something really compelling. Um, I don't know. I, I personally take a lot of pride in that because I guess, I guess that's what I felt like I was when I started writing about beer. I mean, I, you know, I have my own writing accolades in other, in other areas, but writing about beer was risky for me. You know, when I started, I didn't barely knew anything um, so I, I like the idea that other people can kind of follow that path on good beer hunting still even though it's as big as it is now you recently mentioned that you finally have like a solid west coast california team it's gotten pretty cool and... yeah i mean that's always been spotty for us uh mike sardina was sort of the og uh the voice for us when he lived in san diego and he worked at society brewing um and he wrote some great pieces for us but then when he moved up to vermont you know we kind of went quiet out there for a while um but now we've got uh we've got beth demon um mm -hmm. who, who uh i think she's one of the more like chaotic good personalities we've got on the team uh i think that's a great description <laughs> um yeah she's written some really some really cool stuff for us and then 
got Alyssa. Alyssa up in San Francisco has been phenomenal. I mean, she's a veteran. She's a, a killer writer. She's been doing the podcast for us as well. That's kind of an experiment mm-hmm. for her and like taking a big risk and trying something totally new in a new format she's never done. I think she's doing a good job. We've got Clara Rice, who's a photographer in the East Bay. Um, mm-hmm. She was somebody that I just found because I needed a picture of uh, Dave McLean um, for a podcast cover because like we, Alyssa, Alyssa had forgotten to take a picture of him for the cover. <laughs> When I found her photo and asked if we could use it, and then two weeks later, I was at East Brother up in Richmond, one of our clients, and she met me at the tap room just to say, hey, um, uh, loved her personality, and she was super interested in what good beer hunting was. She hadn't really worked for anybody like that before. And, uh, and you know, and we, we care as much about photographers as we do, as we do writers, um, because my background is kind of both. So I think we pay pretty well and competitively, uh, especially compared to small dailies and alternative mags for photographers. We're just looking, you know, they're usually just looking to get something for free. So the fact that we were hiring photographers and showcasing the work really well, she got really psyched about that. And we started, we paired her up with Alyssa to do that resilience story, which is one of the best things we've mm-hmm. ever written. Yeah. And I was going to say that was huge. Yeah. Um, well, with that in mind, now that you've got a California team, what is an area of the country or the world that you would like to maybe build? Yeah, I mean, our efforts right now are, you know, we're looking further in international markets. Um, Evan is helping us do that. He's based in Prague. So he's now our international editor. We hired him on um, uh, right after the new year, right before COVID happened. And, uh, and you know, with an eye towards uh, Eastern Europe, um, an eye towards uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Japan, China, Taiwan, places like that, Vietnam, um, and not just travel pieces, which a lot of our writers have done in the past, but like pieces that were written from somebody there, you know, from the inside of the scene there, which is what we're always after. Um, we've got a piece coming out from South Africa that's really compelling um, that he commissioned with a writer named Lucy down there that I'm excited about. And we started doing Spanish translation um, from Paul Garcia, uh, who lives in South America, and he's been sort of helping us round up a few voices that might be potential writers for us down there. So the work for us in that is uh isn't you know it's not just a culture or a language barrier it's it's really finding who those voices are that um, are really compelling writers they're also culturally connected uh, and they understand beer in the way that good beer hunting wants to present beer um, these are you know we're constantly on the hunt for a different kind of unicorn in a different place all the time and we're patient enough to wait until we get it you know we're not we're not in, you know we're not trying to rush anything we're not trying to just get coverage of an area i think a lot of magazines that just try to have coverage often just get you something that doesn't really matter all that much. Um, we're, you know, we're willing to wait until we can do it really, really well with the right people and, and have something really special to offer. So, so far, Evan's doing a great job. Um, he already got a piece uh, out of Japan um, that was based, you know, happened right around the time of COVID. And he's got this piece out of South America coming uh, and he's going to start blogging for us. He's going to have his own blog on GBH called Retro Causality. Um, That's awesome. You know, where he's basically just looking at the world as if it, you know, the world of beer that thinks everything is new. <laughs> His job is to remind <laughs> us that everything that is new has happened before and will happen again, um, which feels especially relevant right now. So um, speaking of that topic, I had some questions from a friend of mine. He lives, I believe, in Berlin. His name is Benedict Koch. His what a name. Uh, home brewing, uh, his project is called Wilderwald, so W-I-L-D-E-R-W-A-L-D. He's become one of the respected um, names in like traditional German um, Berliner Weise, and he 
he is in one of my many text groups with many different brewers and people. And I kind of threw out there that I was going to be talking to you. So he had a couple questions and um, it kind of goes back to the work that Evan is doing. Uh, he says, what does, uh, what does Kaiser think about bitter wild ales? I feel they will become a trend stuff like Antidote is doing with bitterness from herbs and barks. So in other words, kind of maybe Gruet inspired, not non hop bitter beers. What do you think? Uh, do you think do you see development in that market internationally or locally? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if some, you know, they'll be known in a specific way like that uh, as a category necessarily, but I think as, I think as wild ales and balanced wild ales, not just sours, but like, you know, things that have balance, things that are acidic, but not sour. Um, you know, I think that will continue to kind of slow burn grow the way that the you know, wild ale and Saison category seems to continue, continue doing, but I don't, I wouldn't expect that to suddenly be a new hot trend or anything like that. I don't think, uh, I think our days of anything in wild ale becoming like really trendy are kind of over. I think all of that stuff, it was always small to begin with. I mean, to, it, only people like us inside of this little bubble really understand or really see those things as trends, right? Most people right. never encounter those things because they're almost impossible to get your hands on. So they can never become real trends, not like an IPA or anything like that. So um, I think, you know, nerds are going to continue to find new ways to be nerdy. I mean, I'm always interested in something compelling that's, uh, you know, a little left of center from where I, you know, I, I thought the category was or I thought was interesting about it. So. Um, I mean, I think what we saw with something like Kvik East uh, is a great example of something that can, you know, kind of blow up outside of that tiny, tiny little bubble, but still remain tiny. Um, but it's ultimately in the service of making hazy IPA. <laughs> right. So everything will be. <laughs> uh, um, a follow up from um, Benedict is he says, he actually has two more, but sim similar kind of thing. Might, might kind of, I'll just read the next two back back to back because you might have a similar answer for both he says uh what about berliner weise uh reality versus tradition and the fight of ulrika and others to establish brett in berliner so mm. if you're familiar with um schneeula it's s-c-h-n-e-e-u-l-e -E -E. it's like the old school um berliner weise from berlin where she is doing it super traditional like sometimes a no boil some uh, almost always with Britannomyces. So that's who, and he talks about Ulrika. That's what he's talking about. She she has become one of the respected, um, almost historians of like cre recreating traditional Berliner Weisse. Uh, the, the the next question was another one. Does he think the lambic trend will go down, and all the new brewers and blenders that pop up in Belgium will go down? Lambic Fabrique Belgu. Uh, there's a couple of new school lambic. Uh, brewers and blenders that he's talking about and I, so he's asking about Berliner Weisse about Lambic like I said it, it kind of yeah. might go along with what you what you previously said about the herbal beers I mean up until recently I guess I would have answered the question a little differently I would have said that uh, I think we're just in the long now of all of these things existing forever again right like we're probably never going to go back to a time when they don't exist uh, all these styles that were maybe lost or nearly lost and needed a renaissance in order to come back and be sustainable again i think a lot of that is still going to continue to be sustainable but uh, what happens economically for the next few years is going to determine whether or not they can grow and and become you know real business ventures for these people who you know maybe need they need that to be more than just this small sort of anecdotal example of something historical that still exists i mean 
my hope is that all of those things can continue to exist, even if the, the fervor and the spending and the hype around some of them goes away, because that was never sustainable anyway. So if they weren't preparing for the hype to go away and be sustainable, then they were kind of making a mistake to begin with. My hope, uh, just from a, a beer history and a beer nerd perspective, is that examples of these styles that are excellent just continue to persist in the marketplace one way or another so that people who really want them can continue to get a hold of them and the producers who are making them can continue to sustain themselves and their families as a you know a long-term business even if it means kind of being static um, i think that should be an achievable goal for some of these things we have another question from michael McAllister from the fervent few he says new belgium brought back their shift pale ale for their current variety pack that's a beer i would have bet on sticking around when it debuted but but it did not looking back the last five to 10 years, what was a nationally released new beer or cider you thought would have become a permanent part of a company lineup, but didn't last more than a year or two. Interesting. Huh? I, I, I can tell you mine. Um, although it's still technically around the, the, their push behind it has died as uh, Lagunitas daytime. Yeah. Okay. When that, when that came out, they were really pushing because they were seeing like, you know, was it all day IPA from uh, founders mm -hmm. was killing it. And there, and it was this idea of like, if somebody else can make a session IPA or a session pale, whatever that is low, you know, low calorie and really, really be killing it. They've, there's gotta be room in the market. And what they found out was that really founders was <clears throat> a standalone. And I would say the same things going on with like white claw and seltzer yes. It is a standalone phenomena. It's a white claw where, category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody jumps everybody jumps in thinking that they can oh there's room to play. No, there's not. There's no yeah. room in the sandbox to play. It's a great example. Uh for different reasons, uh I think this one is going to be tricky is Sam 76. Uh I love that beer. If you if you if you've had it or not had it, it's a it's a ale lager blend. Um it's got a little bit of a citrus wheat kind of component to it um that I think is just a slamming beer. But the, the positioning, the marketing um, hasn't really put it in. I mean, Sam hasn't, you know, Boston Beer hasn't had another big hit in a long time. They, they tend to have things like Rebel IPA that is like the biggest, biggest launched craft beer that year. And then two years later, it's basically gone. Um, that's been kind of their track record for a while. I'm interested to see if Sam Calgione can, can switch that up a little bit. Um, but I, I think Sam 76 is one that I am nervous is going to become one of those very soon. Um, just because it's a flash in the pan. Yeah, it just hasn't hit the numbers that they need it to. It hasn't, it's not growing. It's not part of a conversation. Um, nobody really knows how to talk about it exactly. Uh, so. I, I don't, I don't even know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had it. No, I don't, I don't know. It was a massive, massive release. And it was I, not in California, uh, man. I love that beer. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody in the Bay Area is drinking any Sam yeah. Adams at all. Uh, Alakash so. had one. You remember uh, Hoppy Table Beer? Yeah, and that's a great beer. That was a great beer. And <laughs> so, yeah. Table yeah. beers in general, it's like daytime. There's just, there's very few people in the category that are going to survive that. Yeah. I mean, everybody uh, thinks at least that that is, they look at the market and they see 85% of people still drinking light lager yeah. and they're like, there's so much promise there. But what they don't yeah. understand is that they're not drinking that because it's, you know, 4% and cheap, you know, they're drinking it because it's been around forever. They see it a million times a day. Uh, it, you can stock up on a 24 pack pretty easily and put it in your fridge and not have to think about it. Nobody's looking for like the artisanal alternative to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we have one more question from Samer 
on Fervent View says, does Kaiser like live music? If so, which deceased, which deceased musician would he wish to see live? Man, you know, I've never I've talked about this a bunch with my wife because uh, she listens to music a lot. I don't listen to music in general, let alone live shows often. Like I have to like remember like, oh, I should put some music on like while I'm cooking because um, I'm a writer. And as a writer, you can't really listen to music while you're writing. Like it, it, it's cognitive overload, you know, like it's mm-hmm. noisy. You can't do it. Um, so there aren't a lot of times in my life where I, I have space and I'm working with my hands and I'm in a like a more chill mode where I can like listen to music. And so I tend to just like listen to what my friends listen to. It's more of a passive kind of association that I have. Um, but when I do get to go out to shows, um, which is rare these days, uh, having kids and whatnot, but it was a little more common when I first moved to Chicago. Um, I was, I would always just be like emotionally overwhelmed by live shows. I fucking loved it. Um, uh, yeah, I loved it. I think if I, if I were able to see, he said deceased. Yeah. Deceased. I mean, I would want to see something like fucking Prince. Like I want to see, <laughs> I want to see theatrics, you know, like I love that stuff. Right. When, when you're at a show like that, like it really feels like magic to you. Uh, and like, you can kind of just be dispossessed of your body for a second. Like it's, it's pretty transportive. I love that stuff. Um, yeah, that would probably, I guess that would be my pick. I would pick Prince. He didn't ask me, but I'm going to say the Ramones original oh, lineup. So, um, thank you, Michael. I'm going to hit stop record on this. We can chat a little bit longer off okay. the record. Um, Man, that hour just thank blew you for, by. That's how it, yeah, we did like, 40, like huh? about 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We did about 45 minutes and, uh, I'm sure someday they would, they wanted it to be longer. So, but it is what it I is. It. I'd rather be a little more concise. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, again, thank you so much for um, letting me contribute to, to good beer hunting and um, inviting me to, if you, I don't, yeah, I haven't seen you drink a beer this whole time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm drinking my, okay. my Lou. So I've got my Ollie Ollie glass. Oh, right on. And uh, yeah, so Cheers. that was amazing. And um you know, I still have to stay loyal and, you know, be, be, you know, promote myself while I'm promoting uh, GBH too. I've got my third but, bottle uh, in the fridge still. Um, okay. Well, maybe you should open it while we're off the record. All right. Um, <laughs> all right.